A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how, I am, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the land that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, as Michael mentioned, we are a Reformed church, and the Reformed tradition... So much is based on covenant. Um, and Genesis 15 in particular is all about covenant. So if you're not reformed after this service, I think it's the case that I have not done my job. I'm just joking, but whatever tradition you're coming from, we are so glad that you're here. And we hope here at One Ancient Hope that you feel welcomed and you feel at home. And again, regardless of whatever tradition you're coming from. It's the word of God that calls us, that collects us, and that crafts us into the people that God intends us to be. With that in mind, let us pray. 
God, our Father, we thank you for this chance to come together. We thank you for the word and we thank you for the promise that it gives us. I pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, this wonderful passage, which is, Father God, uh, one of the high points of the entire Old Testament as God comes down to covenant with Abraham. Father, I pray that you would apply this passage to our hearts, to our minds, to our bodies, Lord, as we seek to follow you in all things. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, my, my family uh, spent some time in Vietnam working with university students and, and seminary students. And at, at one point during that time, I did a film project with, with students. And students would make films and they would share the films uh, with their classmates. And I noticed that several of the films ended with a very similar scene. Someone would, would walk slowly out into the ocean waves, and then the, the, the scene would go dark, cueing the end of the film. And at first, I, I, I didn't think this was anything more than a bit of dramatic effect, but then I saw this scene again and again and again. And at a certain point, I asked some students, you know, what's, what's going on here? Does, does this scene have some kind of special meaning? And from there, I, I found out that actually, this was a common narrative convention in the culture for, for someone going out into the ocean to, to drown themselves as they let the waves crash over them and the water fill their body. And I, I had no idea I, I, I certainly hadn't realized that these characters in the films the students had made were taking their own lives. And so I was unfamiliar with the significance of this act, and so I, I missed what was being communicated. I missed the full extent of the tragedy that these scenes were expressing. And something similar is at play here in this present passage. A distinct cultural convention is, is being carried out, and, and much of it strikes us as, as strange. There's a strange concoction of actions we see between Abraham and, and God, and we're not sure what's going on. But if, if we look through the cultural lenses, we find that what is being communicated is something very, very significant in Abraham's culture. Theologian Todd Billings makes an important point about us as, as humans, about the kinds of creatures we are, and therefore about the kinds of, of communication we receive, be it from other humans or be it from God himself. Because if God is going to speak to us, he has to speak to us as the kind of creatures we are. And to be sure, he's the one who made us the kind of creatures that we are. And therefore, we have to avoid a dangerous mistake. Billings writes of this, this is the mistake, quote, that for God to speak through scripture, God must bypass the embodied historical culturally embedded life of human beings. What Billings is saying is that we as humans are creatures that are embodied, we're historical, and we're culturally embedded. And therefore, if God is going to speak to any human, and specifically here, if he's going to speak to Abraham, well then, he's got to do it in an embodied, historical, culturally embedded way. And this does not speak of the greatness of, of Abraham. What this speaks of is the greatness of God. Because what God does is God stoops down 
and he communicates himself in a way that Abraham can understand. If you remember earlier in the series, we talked about the Christian faith is not our journey to God. Rather, what it is, is it's God's journey to us. And we very much see that at play here. The reformer John Calvin is helpful here. He says that God's speaking to us is like a nurse speaking to an infant. And think about the loving and animated speech we tend to use when we talk to babies. That's how Calvin describes God coming down and speaking to us. And in this passage, we see how God tenderly stoops down to talk with Abraham. And we see that we have not reached up to God, but God has come down and reached to us. And so when the Christian claims that God has spoken to humanity, it's not an arrogant claim. It's not making much of of us. We're helpless. But what it's doing is it's making much of, of God and his tender love with which he comes down and speaks to us. And we see this beginning in verse 2, where God comes down to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Yet Abraham, even with his faith, his faith in God and his faith in God's promises, he still struggles. And if you remember, the promise that God gives to Abraham has a number of different components, and one of those key components is that Abraham would become a great nation. But to become a great nation you need offspring. And right now, Abraham has no child. So being honest before God, he voices the struggle, this doubt that he has. He says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And Abraham's trying to make sense of the situation and he goes on to wonder if one of his household members will be the one who will be his heir. But God assures him, This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And as we've we've gone through this series, we've we've seen that Abraham is very much a person of, of faith. He believes God's promises, and we've seen this acted out as we talked about in an earlier sermon. Our actions manifest our our faith. They bring our faith to life. And we've seen Abraham leave his home country and go to a place that God will show him. We've seen Abraham let Lot choose the best of the land, and he chooses the Jordan Valley. We've seen Abraham refuse to take the land of Canaan by force because he refuses to force God's hand. He believes in God's promise, and he believes in God's provision. Abraham has faith. But all the same here, we see that Abraham's faith, just like your faith, just like my faith, is not without struggle. And so Abraham voices this struggle to God. In particular, another aspect of the promise is that of of the land. Abraham has been promised land by God, and Abraham voices this concern because after the taking of Canaan in the last chapter, he's still landless. He tells God, Oh, Lord God, how how am I to know that I shall possess it? And again, our God is a gracious God. He's a God that reaches down. He's a God that meets us in our struggles and doubts. And here in this passage, in response to Abraham's struggle, God binds himself and his promise to Abraham in the most powerful way you could possibly do 
in our culture. He performs the ceremony of a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is the cultural convention where two parties bind themselves to each other to fulfill their commitment to one another. And to covenant with someone was to commit that you would fulfill your word to that person at any and all costs. And God was showing Abraham that he was absolutely committed to fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And therefore, what happens is Abraham tells, God tells Abraham to bring a heifer, a goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And again, this strikes us as strange, but Abraham knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what to do. And except for the birds, he goes through and cuts all of these animals in half. And Abraham knows what's coming next. Because with a covenant, with the convention of carrying out a covenant, what would happen is that both of the parties would walk between the two animals. One scholar, O. Palmer Robinson, says that this was essentially a kind of oath of self-malediction, saying, you know what, if I do not keep my word to you, then may I end up like these slaughtered animals. May I end up like these butchered beasts. And Robertson points out that we actually find this ceremony in other parts of Scripture. He points to Jeremiah 34, and in Jeremiah 34, we have a ceremony where in which masters released their servants to freedom, and both parties walked through the pieces. But then what happens is the masters actually go back on that promise. They take the servants back, and God declares to them, and this is in verse 18, that he will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. So not only do we see this convention here, but we see it in other places in Scripture, showing us just how familiar, just how conventional it is in that culture. But still, God does something very strange here. And when we think about communicating, it's something that's open to variation. It's, it's something that's open to modification. Um, towards that end, the, the, the 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein is, is very helpful here, and he did a lot of work with language, with communication, and when he talks about language, he'll talk about a language game. And when Wittgenstein speaks about a language game, he's not saying that our communication is trivial, he's not saying that it's about amusement, but he said it's a kind of free play within bounded rules. Speaking of a word, for instance, he says the following, quote, it's not everywhere bounded by rules, but no more are there any rules for how high one may throw the ball in tennis or how hard. Yet, tennis is a game for all that, and it has rules too, end quote. So Wittgenstein is pointing out that there are only certain things that a tennis ball is permitted to do in a match. But within these limitations, there exist numerous possibilities for free play. And Wittgenstein is saying our words show a similar but much greater freedom within their rules, within their boundaries. When you think about a tennis match, every tennis match follows rules, and so we understand what's going on. But every tennis match is different, and so we enjoy watching what's going on. And Wittgenstein is saying this is just like communication. And we see this also in other kinds of games. 
And this will help us bridge games and communication. Ernest Thayer's classic poem, Casey at the Bat, actually demonstrates this quite well. If you're familiar with the, with the poem, Casey is, is this great baseball player, and he's at the plate. He lets one pitch go by, he ignores it, and it's a strike. He doesn't do anything. He lets the second pitch go by, he ignores it, and it's a strike. And finally, the crowd realizes what, they're, what he's doing. They stop calling for the life of their umpire, and they wait for the next pitch because Casey has placed himself into a kind of do-or-die situation. He's trying to show his own athletic strength and prowess, and he's trying to humiliate the pitcher. But if you're familiar with the poem, he actually fails to connect on his next swing, and to the surprise of everyone, he gets strike three. And through this, something of Casey's character comes through. His pride becomes evident to all. And so we read, as the poem closes, And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout, But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. And as we'll see, language games allow for a similar kind of, of modification, a similar kind of free play. And we see this in God's covenant with Abraham. Because again, according to the conventions, both parties are supposed to pass through the pieces. Again, when you pass through the pieces, you're saying, if I don't keep my word to you, may I end up like these animals. But we find something astounding here. Unlike Casey, who modifies the conventions and shows off his pride, well, God does the opposite. God modifies the conventions to show the utmost love and the utmost humility. Only God passes through the pieces. Abraham doesn't. Only God passes, and he does so in the form of smoke and fire. Like the crowd that came to recognize Casey's less than admirable intentions, we too must understand the meaning of this change and covenant convention. To Abraham, God's intentions are completely clear. If only God passed through, then only God will face any retribution. God is saying, Abraham, if I fail to keep my word to you, let me end up like these animals. And Abraham, if you fail to keep your word to me, may I still end up like these animals. And so Abraham is freed from any threat of retribution that might follow his failure to live according to God's word. As theologian Michael Horton writes, quote, God alone takes the walk, assuming all of the responsibility for carrying the promise through to the end and bearing all of the curses for its breach, end quote. And this is a ceremony, and a ceremony is a very important thing. And even in our own culture, our own contemporary context, where ceremonies are not that important, we don't have that many ceremonies, we still have some, and we realize the power and effect that ceremonies carry. One person who's written quite a bit on this is, is another 20th century philosopher who also worked with language, um, a person named J.L. Austin. And he'll talk about the, how the communication in ceremonies actually serves to alter reality. Uh, in particular, he looks at the utterance of, of I do within the context of a marriage ceremony. 
And of course, this has spiritual significance as a husband and a wife become one flesh, but it also has legal significance. Now the bride and the groom come together and are one entity in the eyes of the state. This uttering of I do within the covenant ceremony has altered their legal status. This act of speech, this speech act, has done more than communicate information. It's not just saying I love you. It's actually done things. Something has been altered. Because this has been carried out, reality has been changed. Because you have said I do, everything has changed. One spouse has bound themselves to another, come whatever may. And because God has passed through the pieces, everything has changed. God has bound himself to us, come whatever may. I now pronounce you man and wife. I now pronounce you God and human. But what exactly has been done? And what exactly can this mean? Well, in this text, specific mention is given to the sun going down and the sky is dark as God passes between the pieces. But this is not the only specific action that God performs under a darkened sky. Look with me at Luke 27, 44 through 46. Luke writes the following. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So what is the connection here between the darkness that envelops Abraham's covenant ceremony? Well, to answer that question, we, we, we have to ask a deeper question, and that's the question of who is this Christ? Who is this Christ that hangs upon the cross? Well, if you recall, in order for God to communicate to humanity, he has to stoop down in love. He has to reach down to us. It's not our journey to him. It's his journey to us. He must enter into the cultural and linguistic conventions that frame human communication. Again, we are creatures that are embodied, that are historical, that are culturally embedded. And God, as our creator, speaks to us as such. He stoops down, he reaches down, he's like a nurse speaking to an infant. But in Christ, God stoops further still. He does not just communicate to us, he actually communes with us in the most surprising of ways. He does not just speak to us, but he actually speaks to us as one of us. He doesn't just commune with us, but he communes with us as one of us. He himself, who created us to become embodied, historically, culturally embedded creatures, himself becomes an embodied, historical, and culturally embedded creature. But we can go deeper still. Not only does he take our humanity, he takes more. And this is why in this passage, when it's dark, we find him on the cross. He takes the punishment of all of the ways that we have failed to love God and neighbor. 
All of us have done things for which we bear guilt and for which we bear shame. We all have regrets for the ways that we've treated our family, our friends, our children, our spouses, our colleagues, even strangers. There's a so-called golden rule of treating others as you'd like to be treated, and really this is just another way of the biblical command to love others as we love ourselves. And this, too, is a matter of communication, a matter of communication between human and human. We're to communicate to others through a million embodied, historically and culturally embedded ways that we love them as we love ourselves. Yet none of us have done this. We've all shown, fallen short, and God does not overlook this. If he did, he would not have had Abraham cut up all those slaughtered animals. A mere handshake or wink of the eye, a mere retort of humans will be humans would have been sufficient, would have sufficed. But God tells us there will be justice. The slaughtered animals tell us there will be blood. But the slaughtered animals tell us it will not be our blood. And this should not surprise us because this is what God communicated to Abraham centuries before and his covenant with Abraham. That Abraham, if you fail to be good on your word, which I know you will, may I end up like these animals. This is why we have the cross. This is why that happened. Because God himself in the person of Christ has been torn apart like these animals. There will be blood. And there was blood. But it was not our blood. It was God's blood. And this is the God that we are called to love. This is the God that we are called to trust. And let's return here to the parallel of, of marriage. I think this is helpful because, again, this is one ceremony. This is one institution that we still have within our contemporary context. And I want to look here at the theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And at one point in his, uh, his time, he's, he's, he's detained in a Nazi prison camp, and he's still writing letters. And he writes one particularly powerful letter to his niece upon the occasion of her marriage. And, and this is a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's, it's worth it because it's just that good. Bonhoeffer tells his niece, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. And then Bonhoeffer goes on, God makes your marriage indissoluble. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Matthew 19.6 God joins you together in marriage. It is his act, not yours. Do not confound your love for one another with God. God makes your marriage indissoluble and protects it from every danger that may threaten it from within and from without. He will be its guarantor of its indissolubility. It is a blessed thing to know that no power on earth, no temptation, no human frailty can dissolve what God holds together. Indeed, Anyone who, knows that, that anyone who knows they may say confidently, what God has joined together can no man put asunder. Free from all anxiety that is always a characteristic of love, you can now say to each other with complete and confident assurance, we can never lose each other now. By the will of God, we belong to each other until 
death. And Bonhoeffer is drawing importance to the covenant ceremony of, of marriage, showing us that it's God himself who binds together husband and wife. And as Christ tells us what God has joined together, let us not dare to put asunder. He's telling us that God is the one who sustains the marriage, not the love of this spouse or the other. It's the covenant of marriage itself established by God. Again, as Bonhoeffer says, we can never lose each other now. By the will of God, we belong to each other until death. But of course, we, we live in a, a fallen world and these things do not always hold true. One covenant partner may be unfaithful. There might be promises that are taken back and marriages do dissolve. And even the best of marriages are plagued by a million little ways that we seek our own good over that of our spouse. Unfortunately, what God has joined together, we do attempt to tear asunder. And to be sure, God knows what it's like to be bound to an unfaithful partner, for he has bound himself to us. And this is the astounding truth of Christianity. Again, it's not our journey to him, it's his journey to us. Christianity does not rest in our faithfulness to God. Thank the Lord for that. It rests in his faithfulness to us. It's not that we have bound ourselves to God, but it's that God has bound himself to us. And therefore, we always need to be looking at God. If we start to look at ourselves, we will never stop wondering, have I been good enough? Have I loved God enough? Have I been a good enough parent? Have I been a good enough neighbor? Have I been a good enough friend? If you think about going on a, on a boat and it goes up and it goes down, there's always the threat of, of seasickness. But they say when you're actually out on a boat, the best way to avoid seasickness is to look at the horizon because it's, it's helpful, it's orienting to look at something that's unmoving that does not change. And the worst thing that you can do is actually look at the boat itself as it goes up, as it goes down, as it goes back, as it goes forth, as it goes side to side. If you look at the boat, there's a much higher chance that you're going to get seasickness. Well, there's something very similar that happens with our spiritual life. If we're always looking at ourselves, it's like always looking at the boat. What we need is something unmoving. What we need is something stable. We don't need to look at how much we read the Bible. We don't need to look at how much we pray, how much we serve our neighbor. And these are important things. These are essential expressions of faith. But if these are our core, if these are our foundation, we will experience a kind of seasickness of spirit. What we should be looking at is, is God, at his covenant, at the way that he's bound himself to us. We should be looking at these slaughtered animals that God passes between. Don't look to yourself, look to the cross. The cross is saying, God's saying, I do. Again, I pronounce you God and human. It's God saying, I already know every act of unfaithfulness you will commit, and I've already paid the penalty for it, and I've done it because I refuse to be without you, because you are mine. And this is the unbreakable love of God. So when we return to the Bonhoeffer quote, we, we actually find that there's aspects that apply perhaps more fully to the way that God has bound himself to us. 
Remember, Bonhoeffer says, free from all anxiety, that is always a characteristic of love, you can now say to each other with complete and confident assurance, we can never lose each other now. By the will of God, we belong to each other until death. And what does this mean? It means to look at God, to look at what God has done and not ourselves. It's to say that yes, forever, even after our death, into, even into the very resurrection of the dead, we are bound to him. We cannot get away. However, one final question arises, and that is, are we putting too much weight upon one particular cultural convention? Again, this is just a convention from the ancient Near East. Can it still speak to us in our contemporary culture? Well, it does because we, like Abraham, and we, like those in his culture, are human. Again, we might not be immediately able to grasp the scene of someone walking out into the waves, but we definitely understand the tragic human significance of someone taking their life. There's a common fact of being human that's always going to transcend any and all cultures, however different those cultures are. In particular, the the philosophers Hubert Dreyfus and and Charles Taylor in their book Retrieving Realism hit this quite strongly, and, and they say the following, quote, In virtue of the way we all are as human beings in contact with the world, we share something important. We all have to find our feet within the boundary conditions of of the same world, on the basis of the same kind of bodies, basic capacities, and so on. Moreover, we all share the same basic needs, food, clothes, shelter, rest, and the like. So what they're saying is we're all humans in the world. We have the same basic needs that we can't escape. We all need food, clothes, shelter, rest, and we'll see those needs play out in any and all cultures. And here with Abraham, we also understand what's being communicated because here, God is actually meeting a more basic need, a foundational need that we have as humans. And this is our need of God himself. And so all humans across any and all cultures understand what's at stake. We might have to work at some cultural interpretation, but we can understand here what's being offered because what's being offered is our greatest need. God himself. And so then how do we receive this offer? Well, we're told quite plainly, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise. Abraham believed that God would get him what he needed. And most importantly, Abraham believed that God would give him himself. He believed also that this was not based on his uh, own obedience or merit, Abraham knew the only reason why he was worthy of the promise of God was because of the work of God. In the next chapter, we'll actually see Abraham fail in a very, very big way. And this is the same offer that's presented to us. No matter what culture, we can understand this common human need. We too are presented with Christ, who is the very bond between God and humanity. And once we are bound to God in Christ, that can never, ever be broken. And this takes us to Romans 4. In Romans 4, Paul tells us that those who share the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. To the extent that that Paul says, quote, Abraham has become the father of many nations. 
And this is the truth that we need to properly understand Genesis 15.5. God says to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. We find a partial fulfillment in the vast number of, of Israelites, those who have a physical lineage from Abraham. But the ultimate fulfillment is the spiritual lineage, those who have faith like Abraham. And that's across every language and culture, everyone who has entered into this very same covenant by faith, who have found themselves inseparably and unbreakably bound to God by Christ. And again, this is a need that we all understand. So let's finish by thinking about the implications. How are we to live if we share Abraham's faith? Well, again, our religious assumptions often tell us that we live well and then we come to God. We live well and then we are saved. But the Christian difference is that this is actually completely backwards. We're first bound to God. We're first saved. And from there, there's no escaping or fleeing this bond. And so we have to learn how to live as those who are inseparably bound to Christ. And think again about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says that one spouse acts to the other not to keep love or to earn the approval of the other, but in each and every act is a response, is a manifestation of that restful assurance of love that they have from the other. This is the confidence that comes with the covenant of marriage. And if we share Abraham's faith, that means that each of our actions, be it to God or to neighbor, is not to earn favor, not to earn the love of God, but it's because we're so assured of it. We're so confident in it. We don't live from guilt, but gratitude. In church, one key way to do this is to relate to one another in a way that we can rest in the relationships we have with one another. Let us learn to say, you are my friend, and you don't need to earn my approval. You have my love already. Be honest, be open, and don't feel like you need to continually impress me. Don't go over again and again the things in your head that you've said, because I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I love you, and I am committed to you. Don't doubt that. Rest in my friendship. Let us learn to say, you are my spouse and you do not need my approval. You already have it. You have my love already. We've been bound together by God and far be it from me to tear asunder what God has joined. Let us learn to say, you are my child and you don't need to earn my approval. You have my love already. You may fail every class and make the very worst mistakes, but that's not going to change my love for you. There will be hard conversations ahead, but that's because I love you. You don't need to impress me with academic or athletic or professional accomplishments. You have my love already and move out with the confidence from that. And so let us learn to rest in the love of others and love so that others may truly rest in our love. Our most foundation, foundational relationship of all that between us and God is based in an unbreakable bound that God himself has inseparably forged in, in Christ. We can rest in his favor and love, and so let us learn to give and receive this same kind of favor and love to others. Let us pray. 
God, our Father, we thank you for the covenant. We thank you, Lord, that you have forged yourself to us inseparably in Christ. Help us to look to you. Help us to rest in you, being confident of your love and being confident of your favor. And Lord, help us to be a community in the church that rests in the love and the favor of one another. We are not a people who come before you to earn your approval. And so let us not be a people that come together to earn the approval of one another. Let us give love and favor to others just as you have given it to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.